I'm reading from Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought into light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of our God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. The saying is true, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and consciousness consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Thanks, Sam. Uh, good that on a chapter on church leadership, I thought when that pigeon came in that there was a coup. <laughs> I've been thinking, trying to think of an illustration or like an opening joke all week. So uh, the pigeon is meant to be here. Adam, is Alan like muttering under his breath about my terrible joke? <laughs> uh, let's pray um, as we look through this uh, book. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and as we look for it now, we pray that we'd be encouraged by uh, your truths, pray that we'd be challenged where we need to be challenged, uh, pray that we would see you as a glorious and great God, as we know you to be through the Lord Jesus. So we pray you'd speak to us and, and, and show us more of your love, and show us how we can live for you and how as a church we can operate as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, if you ever wanted a kind of succinct church leadership manual and a summary of kind of Christian character and behavioral expectations for those in the church, then the book of Titus might well be it. And manuals are not uh, the most exciting read normally, are they? Um, they're not epic stories like we've enjoyed through the book of 1 Samuel of the Old Testament um, this last year. Uh, but as every man's experience will tell them, if, if you ignore a, ma a manual, it's to your own peril, isn't it? 
there are particularly two types of manual that we must always pay careful attention to. One is biblical ones, and the other is Ikea ones. <laughs> now, uh, Titus was uh, a colleague of Paul, and he was left on the island of Crete and the kind of eastern Mediterranean uh, to continue to establish the churches that they had planted there. And his letter was written by Paul to Titus to encourage him and instruct him in his duties. Uh, verse 1 and 2 uh, introduce the overview of the book well. It's not going to be distracting at all. Um, let's have a look at uh, verse 1 and 2. Oh, he's almost out. Just, he'll be fine. Uh, verse 1 of Titus 1 uh, summarizes the overview of the book. Paul, who's writing the book, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Now, as usual, Paul introduces himself as an apostle. He tends to do that in all his letters in the New Testament. Uh, someone who's been personally ordained by Jesus himself to teach with kind of a prophetic authority. Uh, but before reminding Titus, he first and more unusually introduces himself here in this book as a servant, or, or perhaps better translated, as a slave of God. Uh, most likely because that's kind of the theme of the topic that this book is going to address. Now, Paul is instructing Titus to call the churches of Crete to a, a kind of complete obedience to God or to godliness, to lives of godliness. Uh, so Paul is a servant of God. He wants to live a godly life, one of obedience to God. And therefore, we all ought to be as well, is his point. And I think that's probably why he introduces himself as a servant from the beginning. So verse one again, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Uh, let's explore those phrases. It's quite easy to read the verse. But uh, as I discovered this week, trying to summarize them are nearly impossible. So we're going to go through each phrase as we go. Uh, firstly, it is a marvelous and a glorious mystery that God's people, Christians, are elect. That's what we read just there. Or sometimes we use the word predestined or God preordained beneficiaries of the promises of eternal life, which is kind of how he puts it in verse 2. Uh, this idea that God set in motion before the beginning of time, verse 2, uh, a choice, an election of a called people who would be his own. Now, I know often this idea uh, brings us some sort of concern or threat, such a doctrine that suggests some are chosen and others are not. How can that be fair of a God? But I think if we read the New Testament more as a whole, and particularly Paul's writings as well, uh, to think that election was a big problem would be to misunderstand how serious and how sinful humanity is. In Romans, for example, Paul describes us all as spiritually dead, completely dead, dead as a doornail. And there is nothing that a dead person can do to raise themselves, is there? Nothing at all. So our only hope, as Paul explains here and elsewhere, is in salvation, is that, is, is that if we are, elect if we are chosen in love even though we are dead to bring glory to god by his will not ours uh, perhaps it's on the screen actually or you can have a look to the end of titus chapter 3 verse 5 
Uh, he puts it like this in Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we have done. So nothing we have done could save us. Nothing righteous. There's nothing we've done to save us, but because of his mercy. It's a slightly different idea of mercy and election, but the end result is the same, isn't it? There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. It is all by the mercy of God. And so we actually praise God because he elects some. Because if he hadn't preordained his plan of salvation for his chosen people, there would be no hope at all for anyone. Uh, to hear that God's, God elects some and be concerned then that we're perhaps not included, uh, cannot and should not cause us to respond in indignation. As if we kind of deserve salvation. How can God do that? It's not fair. As if we deserve salvation at all. We don't. So we can't respond in indignation. In fact, if we hear about this truth of election, the only appropriate response, if we don't believe it already, is to surely cry out for mercy to God, to ask for his forgiveness, to come before him in repentance, so that we too might be beneficiaries of his election. And the grace of God is designed in such a way that it's all, we're also able to say that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, true repentance will be a proof of our election. Your name, if you like, if you repent before the Lord Almighty truly in your heart, your name is already written in the book of life before the beginning of time. And so we praise God, not ourselves or anyone else, for his grace and his calling. It's actually an equally encouraging truth for those that we love who don't know Jesus yet. For if election wasn't a thing, there would be absolutely no hope for them whatsoever. None at all, zero. But with election, there is a glorious hope that they could too be saved. And so we pray for them and we tell them about Jesus so that they may too come to a repentance before him. It is a marvellous and glorious mystery that we cannot fathom or, or fully understand or reason. Uh, but that is the sort of God we need, isn't it? To save us from our spiritual death. And just as our faith begins in that kind of reassuring but difficult mystery, so too our faith continues mysteriously. You see, if we are elect, then in a sense, our faith cannot then help but be proved through an ongoing sanctification. In other words, an ongoing development of our godliness. Our life will ever improve in godliness, won't it? If we are elect, you can't have one without the other. And yet, at the same time, as we see the, the kind of both sides of the coin for election, at the same time, we are expected particularly in this book, to work at our godliness. We're to put off sin. We're to strive for sound doctrine. We're to have a right understanding of God's truth that leads to godliness. So we don't respond to uh, our election in kind of fatalism where, well, there's nothing I can do, so why bother? I mean, nothing's going to change it. Um, let's just do whatever we like. I'm either saved or I'm not. I'll either be godly or I won't be. I'm not going to make any effort at all. On the contrary, we, as we hear God's truth, his word, verse one, 
We will respond in ever-increasing godliness, still in verse 1. Within the context, verse 2, which we, we read, uh, within the context, uh, which is a sure hope in an eternal life, which God, who does not lie, he's just making sure we understand that. This is, this is God, he can't lie, promised before the beginning of time. In other words, uh, that truth that leads to godliness will have an impact on those who are elect Christians. Put simply, someone who is elect will hear the truth of the Bible and respond in repentance and increasing obedience to it in godliness. Um, and they do that not to earn eternal life, but because they have already been elected to eternal life. See that? So an elect person will hear the truth, respond in uh, obedience, because they are saved, not to be saved. Someone who is not elect will not respond to obedience uh, in the truth, and it will not lead to godliness. That's Paul's point. So the test of election is less about how godly and how well-behaved we are according to the Bible, and much more about how we respond positively or negatively to the word, to the truth. I've met plenty of people who appear very holy and disciplined, but they reject the truth or aspects of the truth. And it's very concerning. Equally, I've met plenty of people, trying, I'll keep my head down at this point, who really struggle and or have, have much to learn or grow in godliness. And yet they love the truth. And when they hear it, you see them change. They respond to it. And, and that is a joy, isn't it? It's a good question to ask ourselves about the truth, isn't it? How do we respond to it? We don't earn salvation by being perfect, but we're moving in that direction because we love the truth and are already saved. So does our knowledge of the truth uh, lead to godliness? That's a good question to ask. How do we respond? Do we respond well and obediently to the truth as best as we can from the Bible? Uh, next, the, the key, uh, the relationship between truth and godliness is so key that Paul then spends the next section of chapter one explaining how that truth can be protected. That's kind of the, the main focus of our, uh, the rest of our sermon today, protecting the truth that leads to godliness. If the truth is so key to our godliness, then how do we protect it? And the answer is elders. Uh, so our first sort of main point uh, after that, Pretty heavy introduction. Elders protect the truth. Have a look at verse five of our chapter. Uh, Paul writes, I left you, Titus, in Crete, uh, that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So each church is to have elders, uh, presumably to continue the work of ordering things as Titus is instructed to do, and to, as we'll see, protect the truth. And Paul's primary concern with elders, though, as, as we see as we go into the rest of this book, uh, is, is not like we think about leaders today. It's not about an ability to complete tasks and, and tick things off, although that has to be part of it if we're going to order things. He is most interested in character. He state, states twice uh, in this chapter that elders are to be blameless. That's a big word, isn't it? He's not meaning uh, sinlessly perfect. 
Uh, what's clear from his fuller explanation in this uh, chapter of what an elder is to be is that he is to be blameless in a sense, but he will not bring disgrace or shame or, or questionable leadership upon the church. So uh, let's go through those areas of blamelessness. Uh, verse six, an elder must be blameless. Fine, what's that look like? Faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So first off, an elder is to be a man. Uh, this isn't a case of ability or intelligence or equality. Throughout the Bible, women are effective leaders and always valued equally and essential to the work of God. This is simply a matter of God has chosen to order things in this way to bring him the most glory. Uh, in September, we'll be starting a series in 1 Corinthians, uh, and it goes much more into detail about this and, and other things. Where, and in 1 Corinthians, women are uh, choosing submission to male leadership in the church and in the family, and men are choosing headship over women uh, in the church and in the family. And incidentally, it's sometimes uh, most men are more trying to avoid headship than women are trying to avoid submission. Uh, but that model is a way uh, of demonstrating how Christ is head over his church. Pigeon didn't like that one. It also models Christ's submission to the Father. So you see that kind of step down. It models Christ's headship of the church and also models Christ's submission to the Father. We could hardly argue that Christ is less equal than God the Father, could we? That, that would be a nonsense. And we could hardly suggest that Christ is missing out by choosing submission to the Father, as if he's undervalued uh, because he's not choosing submission to the Father. Now, obviously, put into a church context of humanity, men are not God. And so submission for women to male headship and other non-elder men to male headship within a church context maybe a little bit harder than Christ's submission to the Father in heaven. But nonetheless, it doesn't remove the idea that this is God's model, his idea for bringing him glory within a church context. And as such, given that position, that is why the character and the blamelessness of men chosen to be elders is so important. And that's what he comes on to next. So an elder to be a man... Next, we see um, he is to be faithful to his wife. Uh, in other words, a man who is historically or presently being unfaithful uh, to his wife is to be excluded from eldership. It's simple. Uh, it would perhaps be unfair, wouldn't it, to assume that a congregation would entrust themselves to a man who cannot remain faithful to his own wife, let alone his Lord and his church and his people. So he is to be faithful to his wife. Thirdly, He's to be a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. And now that word believe is slightly tricky. Uh, it may simply mean that children are to uh, children of elders are to be faithful to those elders, i.e., they are faithful to the parent, believing in the parent, following their instructions, as opposed to necessarily having a faith in the Lord. Uh, but then we get into questions of age and all these sort of things. So I think the easiest way to understand it is that we, what is clear is that there's to be an expectation in the way in which elders raise their children, uh, and therefore, I guess, all of us, that we ought to be able to raise up our children so that they are faithful to us. And, and certainly until they are older, 
we should raise them in a way that they believe what we are teaching them about Jesus. Uh, so important, I was reading this week, uh, Deuteronomy. So important is, our that is it that our children aren't rebellious against their parents. That in Deuteronomy 21, a son who is still rebellious when they get older is to be taken to the elders of the town and stoned to death. That is how significant God views parenting. I mean, that kind of uh, situation, if it faced us, would certainly focus our minds a bit on how we raise our children, wouldn't it? And elders' children ought not to be wild. Uh, a word, again, a word that's translated differently throughout the New Testament, but in other places translated rebellious or debauched or disobedient. It's a strong word. The assumption here is that children will be wild unless they are parented. And so we put real effort into teaching our children, into enforcing behaviours, into disciplining them. It's not okay just to sort of laugh off rebellious or wild behaviour in our children. We are not to raise them as our sort of friends or our chums. We are to raise them as obedient and respectful children of our authority. So as not to bring shame on us as model elders of the church father to their children in the way they behave. Uh, I must admit, nothing has caused Liana and I more exhaustion and effort and time in our entire lives than in constantly teaching and disciplining and correcting our children's behaviour. There are wild tendencies and rebellious ways and unfaithful attitudes to be corrected and often punished every single day. It is exhausting but it is actually the loving thing to raise your child as God sees to be good to be faithful and to be obedient to us loving your child is not giving them what they want and being afraid of correcting them or letting things go or allowing disrespectful attitudes and, and so we could go on it's a lesson our current culture has all but forgotten isn't it but the way to love our child is just to be nice to them and give them anything they want. It's quite a different view here. The way to love our children is to raise them as God sees fit, to be faithful and obedient to us. So uh, an elder is to be a man faithful to his wife, uh, his children are wild. And uh, the, uh, fourthly, we see uh, the word blameless again, verse seven. Since an overseer, uh, sorry, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. I mean, that verse doesn't need much explanation, does it? Uh, but it does challenge us all and remind us all of what sort of people we all want to be under Christ. We're not to be overbearing or bullying, uh, something that church evangelical Christian leadership has come has discovered recently to be a real problem among some churches. We're not to be quick-tempered even when we don't get our way. We're not to be given to drunkenness for it clouds our judgment and our actions. We're not to be violent for Jesus said, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. We're not to be pursuing dishonest gain for we trust God's plans and are content and grateful for all we have. Rather, verse 8, rather is what character of an elder and I therefore presume all Christians should be we should be hospitable one who loves what is good who is self-controlled and upright holy 
and disciplined. Uh, Self-control comes up a few times in Titus. We'll see it next week as well. It's a core characteristic for a Christian, elder or not. And all of this uh, requires an elder to be disciplined, doesn't it? Uh, that's our fifth uh, point. I think that comes. I'll come look at that. I haven't done PowerPoint for ages. Uh, an elder to be disciplined. In other words, this is not natural. All of these things we've just described don't come by default. It's it's not easy to be these things. An elder who is self-controlled and disciplined and able to demonstrate that within his parenting and within his marriage, as we discussed, is then able to be trusted to do the job of an elder, which is to manage the household of God by protecting the truth that leads to godliness. Do you see how all that character demonstrated in a family home situation then shows their ability, albeit not perfectly, to do verse nine. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And so sixthly, an elder is to hold, teach and refute to the truth. Perhaps it all holds together like this. An elder who cannot rebuke his children can hardly rebuke a church member who has opposed sound doctrine. Or equally, an elder who is unfaithful to his wife can hardly insist on faithfulness to the truth from his church. An elder needs godly characteristics and discipline to be able to do all of these things. And so I guess the big application from all of this is we really ought to be praying for our elders because that's a tough job. And I guess these are all things we can think about for ourselves as well to be moving towards. Uh, incidentally, this is not just a description of um, only elders achieve this, far from it. Uh, this is just the qualifications for an elder. Now, the reason that elders are so important because they are protecting the truth is because of what we see next in the second part of this chapter. It's because there are enemies, there are enemies in the church who distract from truth. So our second main point, enemies distract from truth. So elders protect truth, enemies distract from truth. Uh, Paul really doesn't mince his words, does he, when it comes to those who are deceiving Christians with false teaching and doctrine. Verse 10, there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things that ought not to be teached and for the sake of dishonest gain. Uh, no one's certain what the circumcision group was teaching at this time. Uh, it may be as simple as this was Jewish teachings that salvation was found in obedience to the law, and hence circumcision was part of that. And they got the nickname circumcision group. Uh, but they couldn't be more wrong, is Paul's point. Yes, obedient godliness is required in a sense, but not to earn salvation, only because of salvation by grace in Jesus already. But false teaching is certainly not just from uh, Jewish origin. Uh, the Christians, who we owe the phrase lazy Cretan, are not to listen to any teaching that is not sound doctrine from the apostles. So verse 12 
I don't know if it's cretins or cretins. I mean, I know the phrase is cretins, but what would we call it? Cretin. I'm looking at Eric, you know, cretins, cretins. I'm going with that. Uh, verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Wow. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands or to those who reject the truth. Uh, Paul's rather cultural stereotype uh, is not his final uh, concluded judgments on all Cretans. After all, he's writing to further the faith of Cretans, isn't he? he? He has a heart and a love for them. His point is that cultures do develop their own unique traits that are sinful. We see it in our own world, don't we? These sinful traits of cultures and communities need to be brought under the judgment and then the grace of God as much as anything else. Perhaps our current cultural bias would be one for individualism. Uh, my rights to be whoever or do whatever uh, or experience whatever I want and no one has the right to tell me otherwise. That culture that has no understanding of our sinfulness before God and deserves an equally sharp rebuke so that the sound faith of the word uh, may return us to our only true hope, which is humble repentance before Jesus, who saves us despite our sin in his mercy and grace. Uh, verse 15 makes this point a bit more. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. Verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. I told you he doesn't mince his words. In other words, if you think you can be saved by obedience to the law or by individualistic freedom that we seem to declare across our world, today, certainly the West today, or any other human commands for that matter, even if you claim to know God and you're trying really hard to do what you think to be the right thing, you are impure, you're corrupted, you're disobedient, you're unfit for anything good. Nothing you can do can be accepted before God because you're rejecting him entirely by your actions. I'm a good person and, and therefore God will love me. How could he not? It just wouldn't be right. It just doesn't stand up. But for those who are elect, those who are saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus, well, then all things are pure, not in the sense that just do whatever you like, not that fatalism sense, in the sense that we're free from the law. Nothing we do or don't do can save or condemn us, for we're saved freely by grace in Jesus. And so instead, we no longer try to fulfill all these rules and regulations to be saved. Instead, we live as servants, as slaves to the Lord Jesus in the sure hope that he sets before us because he's already saved us and chosen us before the beginning of time. Uh, and the way we live the life of an elect child of God is by, as we've seen, exposing ourselves to the truth of the word as protected by our church elders so that we can live godly lives. Uh, so as we reach the end, I guess in a year of lockdown and perhaps an inability to meet as a church, it may have worn some of us down spiritually. Uh, it's not actually surprising, is it? 
given what we've learned today. If we're not exposing ourselves to the truth that leads to godliness as protected by the elders, we can certainly read our Bibles and the truth at home, but there is a God-ordained plan and way to protect the truth and sound doctrine through his church. And without church, we're left to be swayed around by the false teachings and the influences of the world, aren't we? As we see from the second half of chapter one. The world and the false teachings can get to us. And we're told it will be no different. That is how it works. So we need each other. We need our church. We need a church that teaches the truth and protects that truth through a faithful eldership, albeit not perfectly, but at least we try by the grace of God. So uh, to summarize, let's praise God for election, for it is our only hope. Let's repent and believe that we are, by grace, a child of God, secured into eternal life by a God who cannot lie. And so we enjoy Jesus by pursuing godliness that comes through the truth. We pray for and benefit from the elders who protect the truth that is so precious to us all. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this uh, church manual, I guess. We uh, thank you for the great truth that you have chosen and called us before the beginning of time for your glory. We praise you that we only have hope because you are a God of grace and mercy. We pray for those who we know and love who don't know you, and we pray that you would bring them to repentance. We pray that they would be found in your book of life. Give us opportunity to speak to them. And thank you that there is hope, for you are a God who chooses your people. We pray for our elders and the leadership at this church. We pray that you would keep us, keep them faithful to you. Keep them faithful in their marriages. Keep them persevering and uh, strong in their parenting. Keep them godly in their behaviors and actions so that they will be blameless so as not to bring shame on your church we pray for all of us that we too would seek to live in that way we pray that we would all commit to praying for supporting and encouraging uh, our elders in this church we pray for us uh, as we live in this world of false teachings and worldly influences that we've perhaps been exposed to more this year because we've not been able to meet together in fellowship under your word as protected uh, by your elders. We pray that you would encourage us and remind us to come back together, to hear your truth, to be encouraged again, to hear sound doctrine that leads to godliness. Forgive us all, for we've sinned in so many ways and in different times this year. Bring us back. Bring us to your truth that leads to godliness, not so that we're saved, but because we're saved and we desire to live in no other way than as slaves and servants of your son, Jesus, for your glory and for our sake, we pray. Amen.